Section 26 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 26. Sometimes he hoped that she would die, painlessly, in some accident, she who was out of doors in the streets, crossing busy thoroughfares, from morning to night. And, as she always returned, safe and sound, he marvelled at the strength, at the suppleness of the human body, which was able continually to hold in check, to outwit all the perils that environed it, which to Swann seemed innumerable, since his own secret desire had strewn them in her path, and so allowed its occupant, the soul, to abandon itself day after day, and almost with impunity, to its career of mendacity, to the pursuit of pleasure. And Swann felt a very cordial sympathy with that Mahomet the second whose portrait by bellini he admired who on finding that he had fallen madly in love with one of his wives stabbed her in order as his venetian biographer artlessly relates to recover his spiritual freedom then he would be ashamed of thinking thus only of himself and his own sufferings would seem to deserve no pity now that he himself was disposing so cheaply of Odette's very life. Since he was unable to separate himself from her without a subsequent return, if at least he had seen her continuously and without separations, his grief would ultimately have been assuaged, and his love would perhaps have died and from the moment when she did not wish to leave Paris for ever, he had hoped that she would never go. And he knew that her one prolonged absence every year was in August and September. He had abundant opportunity several months in advance to dissociate from it the grim picture of her absence throughout eternity, which was lodged in him by anticipation, and which, consisting of days closely akin to the days through which he was then passing, floated in a cold transparency in his mind, which it saddened and depressed, though without causing him any intolerable pain. But that conception of the future, that flowing stream, colourless and unconfined, a single word from Odette sufficed to penetrate through all Swann's defences, and like a block of ice immobilized it, congealed its fluidity, made it freeze altogether, and Swann felt himself suddenly filled with an enormous and unbreakable mass which pressed on the inner walls of his consciousness until he was fain to burst asunder for Odette had said casually, watching him with a malicious smile, 
Forcheville is going for a fine trip at Whitsuntide. He's going to Egypt. And Swann had at once understood that this meant, I am going to Egypt at Whitsuntide with Forcheville. And in fact, if, a few days later, Swann began, About that trip that you told me you were going to take with Forcheville, she would answer carelessly, Yes, my dear boy, we're starting on the 19th. We'll send you a view of the pyramids. Then he was determined to know whether she was Forcheville's mistress, to ask her point-blank, to insist upon her telling him. He knew that there were some perjuries which, being so superstitious, she would not commit. And besides, the fear, which had hitherto restrained his curiosity, of making Odette angry, if he questioned her, of making himself odious, had ceased to exist, now that he had lost all hope of ever being loved by her. One day he received an anonymous letter which told him that Odette had been the mistress of countless men, several of whom it named, among them Forcheville, Monsieur de Brote, and the painter, and women, and that she frequented houses of ill fame. He was tormented by the discovery that there was to be numbered among his friends a creature capable of sending him such a letter, for certain details betrayed in the writer a familiarity with his private life. He wondered who it could be, but he had never had any suspicion with regard to the unknown actions of other people those which had no visible connection with what they said. And, when he wanted to know whether it was rather beneath the apparent character of Monsieur de Charlus, or of Monsieur de Lome, or of Monsieur d'Orsan, that he must place the untravelled region in which this ignoble action might have had its birth, as none of these men had ever, in conversation with Swann, suggested that he approved of anonymous letters, and as everything that they had ever said to him implied that they strongly disapproved, he saw no further reason for associating this infamy with the character of any one of them more than with the rest. Monsieur de Charlus was somewhat inclined to eccentricity, but he was fundamentally good and kind. Monsieur de Lome was a trifle dry, but wholesome and straight. As for Monsieur d'Orsan, Swann had never met anyone who, even in the most depressing circumstances, would come to him with a more heartfelt utterance, would act more properly, or with more discretion. So much so, that he was unable to understand the rather indelicate part commonly attributed to Monsieur d'Orsan in his relations with a certain wealthy woman, and that whenever he thought of him he was obliged to set that evil reputation on one side, as irreconcilable with so many unmistakable proofs of his genuine sincerity and refinement. 
For a moment Swann felt that his mind was becoming clouded, and he thought of something else so as to recover a little light, until he had the courage to return to those other reflections. But then, after not being able to suspect anyone, he was forced to suspect everyone that he knew. After all, Monsieur de Charlus might be most fond of him, might be most good-natured, but he was a neuropath. Tomorrow, perhaps, he would burst into tears on hearing that Swann was ill, and today, from jealousy or in anger, or carried away by some sudden idea, he might have wished to do him a deliberate injury. Really, that kind of man was the worst of all. The Prince de Lomme was certainly far less devoted to Swann than was Monsieur de Charlus, but for that very reason he had not the same susceptibility with regard to him, and besides his was a nature which, though no doubt it was cold, was as incapable of a base as of a magnanimous action. Swann regretted that he had formed no attachments in his life except to such people. Then he reflected that what prevents men from doing harm to their neighbours is fellow-feeling, that he could not, in the last resort, answer for any but men whose natures were analogous to his own, as was, so far as the heart went, that of Monsieur de Charlus. The mere thought of causing Swann so much distress would have been revolting to him, but with a man who was insensible of another order of humanity, as was the Prince de Lomme, how was one to foresee the actions to which he might be led by the promptings of a different nature? To have a good heart was everything, and Monsieur de Charlus had one. But Monsieur d'Orsan was not lacking in that either, and his relations with Swann, cordial but scarcely intimate, arising from the pleasure which, as they held the same views about everything, they found in talking together. His relations with Swann were more questioned than the enthusiastic affection of Monsieur de Charlus who was apt to be led into passionate activity, good or evil. If there was any one by whom Swann felt that he had always been understood, and, with delicacy, loved, it was Monsieur d'Orsan. Yes, but the life he led, it could hardly be called honourable. Swann regretted that he had never taken any notice of those rumours, that he himself had admitted, jestingly, that he had never felt so keen a sense of sympathy or of respect as when he was in thoroughly detrimental society. It is not for nothing, he now assured himself, that when people pass judgment upon their neighbour, their finding is based upon his actions. It is those alone that are significant, and not at all what we say or what we think. Charlus and Delhomme 
may have this or that fault, but they are men of honour. Orson, perhaps, has not the same faults, but he is not a man of honour. He may have acted dishonourably once again. Then he suspected Remy, who, it was true, could only have inspired the letter, but he now felt himself for a moment to be on the right track. To begin with, Loridan had his own reasons for wishing harm to Odette. And then, how were we not to suppose that our servants, living in a situation inferior to our own, adding to our fortunes and to our frailties imaginary riches and vices for which they at once envied and despised us, should not find themselves led by fate to act in a manner abhorrent to people of our own class. He also suspected my grandfather. On every occasion when Swann had asked him to do any service, had he not invariably declined? Besides, with his ideas of middle-class respectability, he might have thought that he was acting for Swann's good. He suspected, in turn, Bergotte, the painter, the Verdurin, paused for a moment to admire once again the wisdom of people in society who refused to mix in the artistic circles in which such things were possible, were, perhaps, even openly avowed as excellent jokes. But then he recalled the marks of honesty that were to be observed in those bohemians, and contrasted them with the life of expedience, often bordering on fraudulence, to which the want of money, the craving for luxury, the corrupting influence of their pleasures, often drove members of the aristocracy. In a word, this anonymous letter proved that he himself knew a human being capable of the most infamous conduct, but he could see no reason why that infamy should lurk in the depths, which no strange eye might explore, of the warm heart rather than the cold, the artist's rather than the businessman's, the noble's rather than the flunkey's. What criterion ought one to adopt, in order to judge one's fellows? After all, there was not a single one of the people whom he knew who might not, in certain circumstances, prove capable of a shameful action. Must he then cease to see them all? His mind grew clouded. He passed his hands two or three times across his brow, wiped his glasses with his handkerchief, and remembering that, after all, men who were as good as himself frequented the society of Monsieur de Charlus, the Prince de Lome, and the rest. He persuaded himself that this meant, if not that they were incapable of shameful actions, at least that it was a necessity of human life, to which everyone must submit to frequent the society of people who were, perhaps, not incapable of such actions. 
and he continued to shake hands with all his friends, whom he had suspected, with the purely formal reservation that each one of them had, possibly, been seeking to drive him to despair. As for the actual contents of the letter, they did not disturb him. For in not one of the charges which it formulated against Odette could he see the least vestige of fact. Like many other men, Swann had a naturally lazy mind, and was slow in invention. He knew quite well, as a general truth, that human life is full of contrasts, but in the case of any one human life, he imagined all that part of his or her life, with which he was not familiar, as being identical with the part with which he was. He imagined what was kept secret from him in the light of what was revealed. At such times as he spent with Odette, if their conversation turned upon an indelicate act committed, or an indelicate sentiment expressed by some third person, she would ruthlessly condemn the culprit, by virtue of the same moral principles which Swann had always heard expressed by his own parents, and to which he himself had remained loyal. And then she would arrange her flowers, would sip her tea, would show an interest in his work. So, Swann extended those habits to fill the rest of her life. He reconstructed those actions when he wished to form a picture of the moments in which he and she were apart. If anyone had portrayed her to him as she was, or rather as she had been for so long with himself, but had substituted some other man, he would have been distressed for such a portrait would have struck him as lifelike. But to suppose that she went to bad houses, that she abandoned herself to orgies with other women, that she led the crapulous existence of the most abject, the most contemptible of mortals, would be an insane wandering of the mind, for the realization of which, thank heaven, the chrysanthemums that he could imagine, the daily cups of tea, the virtuous indignation left neither time nor place. Only now and again he gave Odette to understand that people maliciously kept him informed of everything that she did, and made opportune use of some detail, insignificant but true, which he had accidentally learned, as though it were the sole fragment which he would allow, in spite of himself, to pass his lips, out of the numberless other fragments of that complete reconstruction of her daily life which he carried secretly in his mind. He led her to suppose that he was perfectly informed upon matters which, in reality, he neither knew nor suspected. For if he often adjured Odette never to swerve from or make alteration of the truth, 
that was only, whether he realized it or no, in order that Odette should tell him everything that she did. No doubt, as he used to assure Odette, he loved sincerity, but only as he might love a pander who could keep him in touch with the daily life of his mistress. Moreover, his love of sincerity, not being disinterested, had not improved his character. The truth which he cherished was that which Odette would tell him, but he himself, in order to extract that truth from her, was not afraid to have recourse to falsehood, the very falsehood which he never ceased to depict to Odette as leading every human creature down to utter degradation. In a word, he lied as much as did Odette, because while more unhappy than she, he was no less egotistical. And she, when she heard him repeating thus to her the things that she had done, would stare at him with a look of distrust, and, at all hazards, of indignation, so as not to appear to be humiliated, and to be blushing for her actions. One day, after the longest period of calm through which he had yet been able to exist without being overtaken by an attack of jealousy, he had accepted an invitation to spend the evening at the theatre with the Princesse de Lomme. Having opened his newspaper to find out what was being played, the sight of the title, Les Filles de Marbe, by Theodore Barriere, struck him so cruel a blow that he recoiled instinctively from it, and turned his head away. Illuminated, as though by a row of footlights, in the new surroundings in which it now appeared, that word, marble, which he had lost the power to distinguish, so often had it passed in print beneath his eyes, had suddenly become visible once again, and had at once brought back to his mind the story which Odette had told him long ago, of a visit which she had paid to the salon at the Palais d'Industrie with Madame Verdurin, who had said to her, Take care now, I know how to melt you all right. You're not made of marble. Odette had assured him that it was only a joke, and he had not attached any importance to it at the time, but he had had more confidence in her then than he had now. And the anonymous letter referred explicitly to relations of that sort. Without daring to lift his eyes to the newspaper, he opened it, turned the page so as not to see again the words Fille de Marbre, and began to read mechanically the news from the provinces. There had been a storm in the channel, and damage was reported from Dieppe, Cabour, Bezeval. Suddenly he recoiled again in horror. The name of Bezeval had suggested to him that of another place in the same district, Bezeville, which carried also, bound to it, 
by a hyphen, a second name, to which Brote, which he had often seen on maps, but without ever previously remarking that it was the same name as that borne by his friend Monsieur de Brote, whom the anonymous letter accused of having been Odette's lover. After all, when it came to Monsieur de Brote, there was nothing improbable in the charge. But so far as Madame Verdurin was concerned, it was a sheer impossibility, from the fact that Odette did occasionally tell a lie, it was not fair to conclude that she never by any chance told the truth, and in these bantering conversations with Madame Verdurin, which she herself had repeated to Swann, he could recognize those meaningless and dangerous pleasantries which, in their inexperience of life and ignorance of vice, women often utter, thereby certifying their own innocence, who, as, for instance, Odette, would be the last people in the world to feel any undue affection for one another, whereas, on the other hand, the indignation with which she had scattered the suspicions, which she had unintentionally brought into being, for a moment, in his mind by her story, fitted in with everything that he knew of the tastes, the temperament of his mistress. But at that moment, by an inspiration of jealousy, analogous to the inspiration which reveals to a poet, or a philosopher, who has nothing so far but an odd pair of rhymes, or a detached observation, the idea of natural law which will give power, mastery to his work. Swann recalled for the first time a remark which Odette had made to him at least two years before. Oh, Madame Verdurin, she won't hear of anything just now but me. I'm a love, if you please, and she kisses me and wants me to go with her everywhere and call her by her Christian name. So far from seeing in these expressions any connection with the absurd insinuations intended to create an atmosphere of vice, which Odette had since repeated to him, he had welcomed them as a proof of Madame Verdurin's warm-hearted and generous friendship. But now, this old memory of her affection for Odette had coalesced suddenly with his more recent memory of her unseemly conversation. He could no longer separate them in his mind, and he saw them blended in reality, the affection imparting a certain seriousness and importance to the pleasantries which, in return, spoiled the affection of its innocence. He went to see Odette. He sat down, keeping at a distance from her. He did not dare to embrace her, not knowing whether in her, in himself, it would be affection or anger that a kiss would provoke. He sat there silent, watching their love expire. Suddenly, 
he made up his mind. Odette, my darling, he began, I know I am being simply odious, but I must ask you a few questions. You remember what I once thought about you and Madame Verdurin? Tell me, was it true? Have you, with her, or anyone else, ever? She shook her head, pursing her lips together, a sign which people commonly employ to signify that they are not going because it would bore them to go when someone has asked, Are you coming to watch the procession go by? Or will you be at the review? But this shake of the head, which is thus commonly used to decline participation in an event that has yet to come, imparts for that reason an element of uncertainty to the denial of participation in an event that is past. Furthermore, it suggests reasons of personal convenience, rather than any definite repudiation, any moral impossibility. When he saw Odette thus make him a sign that the insinuation was false, he realized that it was quite possibly true. I have told you I never did, you know, quite well, she added, seeming angry and uncomfortable. Yes, I, I know all that, but are you quite sure? Don't say to me, you know quite well. Say, I have never done anything of that sort with any woman. She repeated his words like a lesson learned by rote, and as though she hoped thereby to be rid of him. I have never done anything of that sort with any woman. Can you swear to me on your Laghetto medal? Swann knew that Odette would never perjure herself on that. Oh, you do make me so miserable, she cried with a jerk of her body as though to shake herself free of the constraint of his question. Have you nearly done? What is the matter with you today? You seem to have made up your mind that I am to be forced to hate you, to curse you. Look, I was anxious to be friends with you again, for us to have a nice time together, like the old days. And this is all the thanks I get. However, he would not let her go, but sat there like a surgeon who waits for a spasm to subside that has interrupted his operation, but need not make him abandon it. You are quite wrong in supposing that I bear you the least ill-will in the world, Odette, he began with a persuasive and deceitful gentleness. I never speak to you except of what I already know and I always know a great deal more than I say. But you alone can mollify by your confession what makes me hate you so long as it has been reported to me only by other people. My anger with you is never due to your actions. I can and do forgive you everything, because I love you. But to your untruthfulness, 
the ridiculous untruthfulness which makes you persist in denying things which I know to be true. How can you expect that I shall continue to love you, when I see you maintain, when I hear you swear to me a thing which I know to be false? Odette, do not prolong this moment which is torturing us both. If you are willing to end it at once, you shall be free of it for ever. Tell me, upon your mettle, yes or no, whether you have ever done those things. How on earth can I tell? She was furious. Perhaps I have, ever so long ago, when I didn't know what I was doing, perhaps two or three times. Swann had prepared himself for all possibilities. Reality must, therefore, be something which bears no relation to possibilities, any more than the stab of a knife in one's body, bears to the gradual movement of the clouds overhead, since those words, two or three times, carved, as it were, a cross upon the living tissues of his heart. A strange thing, indeed, that those words, two or three times, nothing more than a few words, words uttered in the air at a distance could so lacerate a man's heart as if they had actually pierced it could sicken a man like a poison that he had drunk instinctively swann thought of the remark that he had heard at madame de saint Uvert. i have never seen anything to beat it since the table turning the agony that he now suffered in no way resembled what he had supposed, not only because in the hours when he most entirely mistrusted her, he had rarely imagined such a culmination of evil, but because even when he did imagine that offence, it remained vague, uncertain, was not clothed in the particular horror which had escaped with the words perhaps two or three times, was not armed with that specific cruelty, as different from anything that he had known as a new malady by which one is attacked for the first time. And yet this Odette, from whom all this evil sprang, was no less dear to him, was, on the contrary, more precious, as if in proportion as his sufferings increased, there increased at the same time the price of the sedative, of the antidote, which this woman alone possessed. He wished to pay her more attention, as one attends to a disease which one discovers suddenly to have grown more serious. He wished that the horrible thing which she had told him she had done two or three times, might be prevented from occurring again, to ensure that he must watch over Odette. People often say that by pointing out to a man the faults of his mistress, you succeed only in strengthening his attachment to her, because he does not believe you. Yet how much more so, if he does... But, Swann asked himself, 
how could he manage to protect her? He might perhaps be able to preserve her from the contamination of any one woman, but there were hundreds of other women, and he realized how insane had been his ambition when he had begun, on the evening when he had failed to find Odette at the Verdurin, to desire the possession, as if that were ever possible, of another person. Happily for Swann, beneath the mass of suffering which had invaded his soul like a conquering horde of barbarians, there lay a natural foundation, older, more placid, and silently laborious, like the cells of an injured organ which at once set to work to repair the damaged tissues, or the muscles of a paralyzed limb which tend to recover their former movements. These older, these octoctonous indwellers in his soul absorbed all Swan's strength for a while in that obscure task of reparation which gives one an illusory sense of repose during convalescence or after an operation. This time it was not so much, as it ordinarily was, in Swan's brain that the slackening of tension due to exhaustion took effect. It was rather in his heart. But all the things in life that have once existed tend to recur, and like a dying animal that is once more stirred by the throes of a convulsion which was apparently ended upon Swan's heart, spared for a moment only, the same agony returned of its own accord to trace the same cross again. He remembered those moonlit evenings, when, leaning back in the Victoria that was taking him to the Rue La Perouse, he would cultivate with voluptuous enjoyment the emotions of a man in love, ignorant of the poisoned fruit that such emotions must inevitably bear. But all those thoughts lasted for no more than a second, the time that it took him to raise his hand to his heart, to draw breath again, and to contrive to smile so as to dissemble his torment. Already he had begun to put further questions, for his jealousy, which had taken an amount of trouble, such as no enemy would have incurred, to strike him this mortal blow, to make him forcibly acquainted with the most cruel pain that he had ever known. His jealousy was not satisfied that he had yet suffered enough and sought to expose his bosom to an even deeper wound. Like an evil deity, his jealousy was inspiring Swan, was thrusting him on towards destruction. It was not his fault, but Odette's alone, if at first his punishment was not more severe. My darling, he began again, it's all over now, was it with anyone I know? No, I swear it wasn't. Besides, I think I exaggerated. I never really went as far as that. 
he smiled and resumed with just as you like it doesn't really matter but it's unfortunate that you can't give me any name if i were able to form an idea of the person that would prevent my ever thinking of her again i say it for your own sake because then i shouldn't bother you any more about it it's so soothing to be able to form a clear picture of things in one's mind what is really terrible is what one cannot imagine but you've been so sweet to me i don't want to tire you i do thank you with all my heart for all the good that you have done me i've quite finished now only one more word how many times oh charles can't you see you're killing me it's all ever so long ago i've never given it a thought anyone would say that you were positively trying to put those ideas into my head again and then you'd be a lot better off she concluded with unconscious stupidity but with intentional malice i only wish to know whether it had been since i knew you it's only natural did it happen here ever you can't give me any particular evening so that i can remind myself what i was doing at the time you understand surely that it's not possible that you don't remember with whom odette my love but i don't really i don't i think it was in the bois one evening when you came to meet us on the island you had been dining with the princesse de lome she added happy to be able to furnish him with an exact detail which testified to her veracity at the next table there was a woman whom i hadn't seen for ever so long she said to me come along round behind the rock there and look at the moonlight on the water at first i just yawned and said no i'm too tired and i'm quite happy where i am thank you she swore there'd never been anything like it in the way of moonlight i've heard that tale before i said to her you see i knew quite well what she was after odette narrated this episode almost as if it were a joke either because it appeared to her to be quite natural or because she thought that she was thereby minimizing its importance or else so as not to appear ashamed but catching sight of swann's face she changed her tone and you are a fiend she flung at him you enjoy tormenting me making me tell you lies just so that you'll leave me in peace the second blow struck at swann was even more excruciating than the first never had he supposed it to have been so recent an affair hidden from his eyes that had been too innocent to discern it not in a past which he had never known but in evenings which he so well remembered which he had lived through with odette of which he had supposed himself to have such an intimate such an exhaustive knowledge 
and which now assumed, retrospectively, an aspect of cunning and deceit and cruelty. In the midst of them parted, suddenly, a gaping chasm, that moment on the island in the Bois de Boulogne. Without being intelligent, Odette had the charm of being natural. She had recounted, she had acted the little scene with so much simplicity that Swann, as he gasped for breath, could vividly see it. Odette yawning, the rock there, he could hear her answer, alas, how light-heartedly, I've heard that tale before. He felt that she would tell him nothing more that evening, that no further revelation was to be expected for the present. He was silent for a time, then said to her, My poor darling, you must forgive me. I know I am hurting you dreadfully, but it's all over now. I shall never think of it again. But she saw his eyes remain fixed upon the things that he did not know, and on that past era of their love, monotonous and soothing in his memory, because it was vague, and now rent, as with a sword wound, by the news of that minute on the island in the Bois, by moonlight, while he was dining with the Princesse de Lomme but he had so far acquired the habit of finding life interesting, of marvelling at the strange discoveries that were to be made in it, that even while he was suffering so acutely that he did not believe it possible to endure such agony for any length of time, he said to himself, Life is indeed astonishing, and holds some fine surprises. It appears that vice is far more common than one has been led to believe. Here is a woman in whom I had absolute confidence, who looks so simple, so honest, who in any case, even allowing that her morals are not strict, seemed quite normal and healthy in her tastes and inclinations. I receive a most improbable accusation I question her, and the little that she admits reveals far more than I could ever have suspected. But he could not confine himself to these detached observations. He sought to form an exact estimate of the importance of what she had just told him, so as to know whether he might conclude that she had done these things often, and was likely to do them again. He repeated her words to himself. I know quite well what she was after. Two or three times. I've heard that tale before. But they did not reappear in his memory unarmed. Each one of them held a knife, with which it stabbed him afresh. For a long time, like a sick man who cannot restrain himself from attempting every minute to make the movement that he knows will hurt him. He kept on murmuring to himself, I'm quite happy where I am, thank you. 
I've heard that tale before. But the pain was so intense that he was obliged to stop. He was amazed to find that actions which he had always hitherto judged so lightly had dismissed, indeed with a laugh, should have become as serious to him as a disease which might easily prove fatal. He knew any number of women whom he could ask to keep an eye on Odette, but how was he to expect them to adjust themselves to his new point of view, and not to remain at that which for so long had been his own, which had always guided him in his voluptuous existence, not to say to him with a smile, You jealous monster, wanting to rob other people of their pleasure? By that trap-door suddenly lowered, had he, who had never found in the old days in his love for Odette any but the most refined of pleasures, had he been precipitated into this new circle of hell, from which he could not see how he was ever to escape. Poor Odette! He wished her no harm. She was but half to blame. Had he not been told that it was her own mother who had sold her, when she was still little more than a child, at Nice to a wealthy Englishman? But what an agonizing truth was now contained for him in those lines of Alfred de Vigny's Journal d'un Poète, which he had previously read without emotion. When one feels oneself smitten by love for a woman, one ought to say to oneself, What are her surroundings? What has been her life? All one's future happiness lies in the answer. Swann was astonished that such simple phrases, spelt over in his mind as, I've heard that tale before, or I knew quite well what she was after, could cause him so much pain. But he realized that what he had mistaken for simple phrases were indeed parts of the panoply which held and could inflict on him the anguish that he had felt while Odette was telling her story, for it was the same anguish that he now was feeling afresh. It was no good his knowing now, indeed it was no good as time went on his having partly forgotten and altogether forgiven the offence. Whenever he repeated her words, his old anguish refashioned him as he had been before Odette began to speak ignorant, trustful. His merciless jealousy placed him once again so that he might be effectively wounded by Odette's admission, in the position of a man who does not yet know the truth. And after several months this old story would still dumbfounder him like a sudden revelation. He marveled at the terrible recreative power of his memory. It was only by the weakening of that generative force, whose fecundity diminishes as age creeps over one, that he could hope for a relaxation of his torments. But as soon as the power that 
any one of Odette's sentences had to make Swann suffer seemed to be entirely exhausted, lo and behold another, one of those to which he had hitherto paid least attention, almost a new sentence, came to relieve the first, and to strike at him with undiminished force. The memory of the evening on which he had dined with the Princesse de Lomme was painful to him, but it was no more than the centre, the core of his pain, that radiated vaguely round about it, overflowing into all the preceding and following days, and on whatever point in it he might intend his memory to rest, it was the whole of that season, during which the Verdurin had so often gone to dine upon the island in the Bois, that sprang back to hurt him. So violently, that by slow degrees, the curiosity which his jealousy was ever exciting in him, was neutralized by the fear of the fresh tortures which he would be inflicting upon himself were he to satisfy it. He recognized that all the period of Odette's life which had elapsed before she first met him, a period of which he had never sought to form any picture in his mind, was not the featureless abstraction which he could vaguely see, but had consisted of so many definite, dated years, each crowded with concrete incidents. But were he to learn more of them, he feared lest her past, now colourless, fluid, and supportable, might assume a tangible and obscene form, with individual and diabolical features and he continued to refrain from seeking a conception of it, not any longer now from laziness of mind, but from fear of suffering. He hoped that some day he might be able to hear the island in the Bois, or the Princesse des Lommes mentioned, without feeling any twinge of that old rending pain. Meanwhile, he thought it imprudent to provoke Odette into furnishing him with fresh sentences, with the names of more places and people, and of different events, which, when his malady was still scarcely healed, would make it break out again in another form. End of section 26